Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform, the top podcast in retail banking. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Allison Sarah, Chief Marketing Officer at Alchemy Technologies, joins me on the Banking Transform podcast today. Allison has seen marketing evolve tremendously over her career as an expert on harnessing insights to fuel marketing campaigns and optimize return on investment. But it's not just about big data. It's about the right data, transforming information into actionable strategies that can drive customer engagement, loyalty, and trust. It's about that final mile. Alice and I explore how banks can leverage analytics to create insight-driven campaigns, the importance of personalization in marketing, and how technology is changing the future of customer interactions in financial services. Financial institutions of all sizes must maintain the delicate balance between automation and the human element in customer service, as well as understand the significance of using insights to enhance customer experiences and financial well-being rather than just pushing products. As we are about to embark on 2024, banks and credit unions that are on the edge of digital transformation must be willing to take the leap to become completely future ready. So Allison, welcome to the show. While we've become very familiar with each other over the last few years, could you introduce yourself and give our listeners a quick look at your background and also describe what Alchemy does for the financial services industry? Yes, absolutely, Jim. Well, thank you so much for having me. It is kind of weird that that this is our first time on your show. I'm so honored to be here, but I always love talking to you. It's like talking to a friend. So thank you for having me. Um, my name is Allison Sarah. I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Alchemy. We are a digital banking provider that provides the digital banking software to regional banks and credit unions around the U.S. to help them compete against mega banks and win. Um, I've been here now almost three years. And my background, I like to say I've been in marketing since the earth's crust hardened. I started in marketing. My first job was a marketing intern for what would become Verizon Wireless at the ripe old age of 17. And I've been wow. in marketing ever since. And so I've been like at companies like Intel and HP and McAfee. And now I'm here at Alchemy. Well, you know, so much is going on in the marketplace. I mean, even this last weekend, there's been all kinds of turmoil in the marketplace around ChatGPT and OpenAI. And, you know, it's interesting how all these elements touch financial marketing. So could you give us a brief overview of how you see the evolving landscape of digital marketing in the banking sector? Of course. Well, I mean, marketing, like I said, I've been here for a minute and marketing has changed drastically from where it was when I started. I mean, marketing used to be, and we've all seen Mad Men, it really, you know, it really did kind of depict what marketing has been for so, so long, starting out as really advertising and kind of a spray and pray methodology of you just kind of used 1.0 analog media and hope for the best, right? Now you're seeing hyper-personalization at scale, things we couldn't have envisioned even 10 or 15 years ago are now making it into mainstream. And what I like to think about is, you know, you can never think about marketing without thinking about the market first. I say you can't spell marketing without market. It's our first name. And when you look at the market of the stress that Americans are under right now, 
with just the inflationary period being where it is right now, looking at an inverted yield curve that we don't know, is it going to be a recession or not? Every week, it seems like that news changes. Um, you're looking at student loan debt now coming back into the mainstream. You look at the fact that now it's more expensive for the first time in a long time to own a home than to rent. These are economic indicators that suggest that there's a reason why 80% of Americans say they are under financial stress right now. And what's interesting is our research says that about 56% of them expect their primary financial institution to know they're under financial stress. And here's the kicker, do something about it. Offer them financial tips, offer them helpful um, products and services that can help them in these tough times. So when you shift the debate into what does the market need right now, they need really personalized offers at scale to help them in these extraordinary economic times in which we find ourselves, to help them through that, to help them navigate their financial futures. And when you think about where marketing can play a role and where more and more automation can play a role in that kind of um, problem, now it starts to get much more exciting. You know, it's interesting. You you talk about customer expectations. And, you know, it's not so long ago that the banking world was able to drive what consumers got as opposed to us having to listen. Well, we do have to listen now because there's so much going around, uh, on around the banking industry, outside the banking industry. But, you know, you, you being in charge of marketing at Alchemy, you sense that things are changing. You're having to make adjustments at your company. But as you reach out to your clients, the banks and credit unions that you serve, what are the key challenges or gaps that you see that are really challenging the financial marketers to meet these expectations? Yeah, we we talk to our clients all the time about this, and we do a lot of research here. We, uh, I come from a research background, so I, I tend to have a bias that if I can go to the market and ask the question, I'd rather ask the question than assume that I know the answer. So we do a lot of research here, and we've talked to marketers at financial institutions to ask that question, and we kind of see a few key themes happening here. One is there is an amazing set of data that these marketers sit on top of, right? There's perhaps no better behavioral data than what a bank or credit union knows about their customers or members. Um, You know, you show me where you spend your money, I'll show you what's important to you. And banks and credit unions know where their consumers and businesses are spending their money, which is just a treasure trove of insight to a marketer. The problem is that these data sets have historically resided in these silos that are extremely difficult to penetrate. So trying to make sense of very convoluted, unstructured data, and what I mean by unstructured is, yes, the data is structured, but it's not exactly intuitive. It comes in these bits and bytes and codes on the core that nobody can really interpret with just the layman's eye. You need to understand what that code means to understand what the transaction equates to. So while marketers theoretically have the best first-party data available out of any industry, they can't harness the data because it sits in a silo. They have to go through IT. They have to understand what they're looking for. And then they have to go run these lists, which goes to the second problem. They sit in perpetual list running scenarios, right? So no sooner do they run a list thinking they understand who they're trying to target with what offer at the right time, then the list is presumably stale. Because you're running through a silo, you're trying to get the list manipulated, now you're trying to get the list uh, ready for for the campaign, 
And by the time you know it, the list is dated, it's stale, and you're going back to the same IT department to go, hey, can you run that list again for me? Because I need to make sure it's still up to date. So they stay in this perpetual cycle of list management, which I don't know about you, Jim, but most marketers don't love that. I'm just going to say no. it's uh, you know not exactly where they thought they'd right. spend their careers when they went into marketing. You know, so th- they stay there. The, the third problem is there's a lot of technology that purports to solve the problems for the marketers. And what happens is they go on these these, uh, promises by vendors to say, I can solve that problem for you, only to find out that the technology is either difficult to implement, integrate, or use. And so all of a sudden, now they're left with uh, what's called in software, a derisive is called shelfware. You didn't buy software, you bought shelfware because it sits on the shelf. So they are left with this shelfware that goes nowhere for them. And now they lose credibility in their organization the next time they try to make a run for automation that's going to help their cause. And then last but not least is probably the most important. They lack a single version of the truth. So assume you get through those three hurdles. Assume you can get to the list. Assume you can update the lists with regularity. Assume that you actually have automation that works. Now what you have to worry about is when you get into the boardroom, that you're actually looking at the same data that everyone in that boardroom would agree is a common set of data they can agree to. So if you make it to the boardroom and you try to prosecute the case of this was the ROI of our efforts or of our campaigns, now you've got to make sure that the CFO, the COO, the chief retail officer, the chief commercial officer, that that chorus would say, I agree with the way you're measuring that data. And I agree that that would be accurate ROI. And if you make it to the boardroom, that's typically now the final hurdle, the gauntlet that you have to run is to prove to the stakeholders in the executive suite that the data you're measuring actually is real and is actually one version of the truth. So it's it's not easy being a marketer in these institutions these days. You know, it's interesting because the foundation upon which marketing today is built is the same as it was when I was a financial marketer four decades ago. The reality is we all know we need to use data, but we're really, in most cases, overwhelmed by where to start. What are the first steps that you recommend? I mean, if a marketer right now is stuck on stop or neutral, not stop, neutral, and they're getting reports or they're getting data at their fingertips, where do they start? Because most organizations, to my knowledge, really feel that their 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 data is not data ready, not not market ready. But the reality yeah. is there's partners like Alchemy that can really help them move that data into utilization, that final mile. So what steps would you recommend marketers take to start? Well, I think one thing that we've realized, as with most things, and you know this from from the interviews that you do, as as with most things, this starts with a cultural change. So the first thing that I would say marketers have to look at is, do you have the relationships established between three key constituents in the enterprise, at least these three? The first is IT. Do you have a working relationship with IT that you can actually come to the table together and understand the data sets that you do have, where the data resides, and how you can tap into that data with hopefully maybe some of the tools you already have deployed that maybe are being right now more considered shelfware than software because you're just not fully utilizing what your organization may have already bought. Um, The second constituency that you really have to think about is compliance. Because the other challenge these marketers have, as we know in this industry, is you can't just use demographics to inform how you're going to target. Other industries have that benefit. They can actually look at demographic data that's widely available and use that as the proxy 
to target their their customers. Um, here, we know that that is absolutely not the case. So you have to make sure that compliance is also at the table with you so that whatever you're looking to do meets the compliance requirements that you need to serve. And then last but not least would be whoever in your organization, whether that's the CFO or the equivalent, who looks at the numbers daily and knows what the organization is measured on from an ROI perspective, that you are saddled up really tight with that team to make sure that marketers don't fall into the trap of looking at the the, uh, metrics that we admire that are leading indicators like impressions, like reach, like frequency for those of us who've been here for a minute, but actually are measuring what the conversions are and how the, the organization views those conversions. What is the economic impact of a loan converted? What's the economic impact of a deposit com- account converted? And how do you now use those metrics and the way that that CFO thinks to inform how you're going to measure your campaign? I think it starts there. If you get kind of saddled up with IT, with compliance, with the CFO to understand what data do we have and where does it sit today? Is it being used? How do we use that data responsibly and within the compliance requirements? And how do I now look at the outcomes that a CFO would consider important in the boardroom? You're at least getting to the goal of what you're trying to get to before you start going and acquiring additional tools and software that may help fill in some of the gaps where you find them. You know, Susan, we talk a lot about the importance of utilizing third-party solution providers like Alchemy. We do that because most organizations are not big enough to do it on their own. They really have a challenge because in many cases, they don't have the talent. They may not have the number of people they need to do. They may not have access to the data the way they need it. And most importantly, very few organizations today, and you mentioned it earlier around, you know, shelfware, we have a hard time taking what's the data and putting it into use. How does Alchemy partner with financial institutions to actually take what they have in their organization and put it to use on the street? Yeah. So we um, bought a company a couple of years ago called Segment. And the reason we bought a company called Segment is because we realized when we looked inwardly at ourselves, the data and marketing was going to be the next frontier for hyper-personalization at scale for financial institutions. And we knew that to really get that right, there's a reason that machine learning and AI and everything is all the buzz these days. But the thing is, If the data isn't strong and if the models have not been trained over several, sometimes years of period to really understand what the the data is telling you, um, it's kind of hard to get in that game, right? It's the reason that Google is still the behemoth search engine that it is, because it's really hard to take on Google in search when they have spent decades yeah. understanding what people are searching for and then using models to inform that they basically know what to serve back up to you, right? It's really hard to penetrate that game once you do it really well. So data is kind of that way. It's kind of like if you got the head start in data before data was cool, you're in a really good position today. If you're trying to get on the data bus now, maybe not so much. So Segment was in the data business before data was cool. And they were doing it for like 15 years. We acquired them. And what they do, their specialty was taking all of that core data that a financial institution has that passes through its core every day, but is in, in many cases completely unusable, especially to a marketer, because you have to understand what that data is telling you. So what Segment 
did was they basically, over many, many years, cleansed and codified that data and then started to assign behavioral tags, not based on demographics, but based on transactional data so that you could actually look at who might be aspiring homeowners, who are competitive credit card users in your in your footprint, who might be looking for a deposit account at a higher yielded interest rate. You can actually use these demographic tags, I shouldn't say demographic, sorry, my apology, but behavioral tags, yep. not demographic yep. tags, to target who you're looking for to basically insert a campaign. And the great thing is, is that unlike having to go to IT perpetually, because IT I'm sure doesn't love this either, knock on the door, I need another list, um, that once you basically enter the campaign, once you have the behavioral characteristics that enter you into the campaign, you're automatically entered in the campaign based on that core data. And likewise, Jim, once you convert, so let's say it's for a new deposit account, once you convert into the campaign, you're automatically exited from that campaign so you don't see that message again. So it kind of makes it, uh, you know, Ron Popeil said it and forget it. If you don't know it, Google it. It's kind of the set it and forget it of list management and yep. it lets you harness the data and it's compliance requirement, you know, certified because we're not using demographics. It's all anonymized and it just kind of helps marketers do what they want to do, which is go out to the market and serve up useful offers and tips to their customers and members. That's a key. It's interesting. I'm a big fan of segment. They're in my backyard right up here in Northeastern Ohio. I've known them for years. I've known the, the founders of the company. And what really made that partnership with you special is that unlike a lot of data companies, they really spend a lot of time, all their time, on finding ways to actually deploy that in the marketplace. That final mile that, you know, I, I talk about Salesforce being a tremendous tool. But yeah. more than half the financial institutions out there have never used it. They buy it annually because they don't want to not have it because they know it's an important concept to have but or an important product to have. But the reality is they don't implement it. And Segment does a really good job in the financial services industry, which is even more important, saying, right. here's your data. Here's your opportunities. Here's how you should go after that. And for institutions that are smaller, that don't have a team that can continuously think up new ideas or more importantly, know what parts of those ideas are really great and which ones will end up to be failures. You really give financial institutions the GPS of financial marketing to, to help them say, I'll tell you what, we're going to make your data work for you and we're going to generate revenue and we're going to lower your costs by doing so. And you won't have to continually reach out to your, your data department. And I, it's funny because that also went on 40 years ago where I realized even when I was in the direct marketing business for other financial institutions, getting the data department to look at what happened after the program, what were the results or to pull this the way you really want it or to even think about other than simply filling an order, is this really what you should be asking? That's such a key element. And another one of those key elements for using third-party solution providers that have been there, done that. Now, mind you, what's interesting is our, our core providers tell us the same things. They can help us do those things. The challenge many times is they can't do it with all their clients. They can't be the best at this. And, you know, that's one of the things I really like about Alchemy and, and Segment is that you really work on behalf of your clients to do that. So can you share an example of a bank that you know has successfully implemented what I'm going to call an insight-driven campaign to achieve a, a strong ROI? 
Yeah. So we, um, well, thank you for that, Jim. That really means a lot coming from you because I know you see a lot of products in this space. And I I do want to say, you know, we, there was a reason we bought Segment, obviously, because Alchemy saw how special it was. But it, whether you are one of those marketing teams that is very resource constrained, to your point, uh, this product comes with the marketing automation tool built into it. So you can actually take the full stack and say, and I want the marketing automation tool so that I can intercept you via email. I can intercept you via uh, programmatic media on the web. I can intercept you with my analog channels. It's, it's omni-channel, but Jim also, let's say you are deployed SFDC, right? Because we have some who have, you know, SFDC marketing cloud already deployed. They're kind of ahead of the game then you can just take the data insights because one thing SFDC Marketing Cloud isn't able to provide is let's cleanse that core data for you and tell you based on your existing account holders who they are, what they're doing, and what campaigns we should serve up to them. So even if you just needed the data and you said, I've already got my marketing automation, I don't need everything that you're offering, we actually have a modular kind of approach that meets the financial institution where they are. And our data, to your point around, like, give an example. Well, there's literally, as wide as your imagination is, you can think about the kinds of campaigns that our uh, customers can launch, Um, whether that is, I'm, I need to basically drive up interchange. And I, this is a very basic one. And I want to look at how many of my uh, existing account holders are using bill pay for recurring subscription payments. And I want to intercept them to say, why don't you move that to your debit card or to a credit card I'm offering you so that you as the account holder get rewards as part of that exchange. And me as the financial institution behind the scenes, I'm now collecting the interchange revenue, converting what is now a cost center, bill pay into a revenue center, which is interchange revenues. That's a very kind of basic, but something that is harder to go do than you might think, because again, you're trying to pull those lists. So you can basically set up a search, find those people and every month intercept them with what is your debit offer or your credit offer. Speaking of debit and credit, you can look up, this is one that's a big hit with our with our um, customers. You'd be surprised just to know who in your account base has a competitive product with somebody else. So being able to find all the competitive credit card holders and who they have the card with. Uh, so if you know you have a particular offer that's strong against a megabanks offer, you could find said account holders that have a credit card through that mega bank and basically make them an offer of your own. Same thing with the deposit account, same thing with the loan offer. So you can actually start to understand, even if you used it for nothing else than to understand your market and where your account holders are also shopping and who they're using, it's a really insightful tool. Um, Our research shows that based on campaigns that are launched, the average customer experiences a 13 times ROI on those campaigns. And that is their data, not ours. So the tool allows you to set up those parameters. So my earlier point, it starts with culture. Get with your CFO and say, what is the value of a deposit account to us? What is the value of a loan account to us? What is the value of a new uh, credit or debit card holder to us? And then the tool allows you to say, how long do you want to count the conversion? So if you're launching the campaign on day zero, I don't want to count conversions past day 60, let's just say. Yeah. So even if you came in six months later, I'm not going into the boardroom to try to attribute that to this campaign. I'm going to keep the window tight. The, the 
FI in this case gets to set their own parameters and that 13 times ROI is what the tool then generates is, okay, this is what you generated in marketing based upon those campaigns that you've run. That's the average. You know, that that is scary smart and scary cool. You know, it's interesting because a lot of organizations now are, are looking for deposits and they're looking for a way, how do I increase deposits without killing my interest rate margin? I mean, it just, you can end up in a really bad situation. And, you know, the smartest organizations now, and we've heard this a couple of times, I know the segment can do it, look at deposit flows. So they look at when I get my paycheck, let's say, where does my money go? It doesn't all stay with my primary financial institution. Well, if a bunch of it goes to SoFi or a bunch of it goes to XYZ organizations that pay in a higher rate, it's going to cost me a whole lot less to reach out to those people and offer a very highly competitive rate than to offer it to the marketplace as a whole because then I'm only doing a blended rate with whatever other deposits the consumer has. You know, right. that type of mixing of technology and data and actually that final mile implementation process is so key. And again, as I'm looking, there's no financial institution that feels like they have enough marketing people but to continually generate these ideas that have been tested, that have played out the marketplace, that can be composable. In other words, if I only need deposits, I don't have to buy everything to get there. I can, I can look at how do I implement that strategy. So you mentioned it in the last answer about technology. How important is it for marketers to have the right technology stack to support the data-driven campaigns. I know that one of the, the benefits of Alchemy, one of the things that Alchemy does is to bring together a whole lot of solution providers that work together towards whatever goal the financial institution is trying to reach. But how important it is right now for the technology stack to be correct? I, I think it's, I, it, certainly you can say this all the time, it's never been more important and it'll be more important tomorrow, right? It, it literally is, I, I could not do my job as a CMO of this company without the right technology to help me understand my own customers and where they are and to intercept them at the right place at the right time. You are non-competitive. You, you don't at least have the ability to do that. And the problem is you, the competition is no longer, well, it's the regional bank or credit union down the street from me. Your competition are these mega banks and these neobanks that have a lot of money at their disposal, particularly in marketing, to help them do this. So trying to find the tools without getting the tools sprawl, because I've seen that at other companies where you just keep adopting tool after tool after tool, hoping that eventually this will all be threaded together magically and it'll work for you. And it doesn't automatically happen, right? You, you basically end yeah. up with tools that are disparate. You end up with tool sprawl, tech debt that is then hard to basically undo and, and reverse and then move forward. So it's really about getting the minimally viable tech stack that you need to do what you have to do and making sure that the tech that you're using is integrated, that you've got the integrations between your all core systems. All talks to each other, yep. All talks to each other because there's no one system that knows it all. So you, you've got to be thinking of, tech that plays well in the sandbox with other tech. And that goes to all the integrations. It goes to the APIs that marketers don't need to necessarily know, but they have to kind of understand to know what questions to ask in the engagement process to make sure they're not left with stranded tech, literally stranded on an island somewhere or stranded on the shelf that is no longer usable. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we interviewed Raja Rajamanir from MasterCard, and he he wrote a book called Quantum Marketing. And it, it was great because I haven't read a marketing book for a, quite a while, but but his book was so intriguing because 
all this stuff that is out there today, all the technologies, all the data sets, all the opportunities that are out there, they are totally overwhelming because there are so many tools out there that can be used. You have to select between those and figure out you know, which ones will work together. So when we're looking at emerging technologies, which every day when we open up our, our journals, whatever we open up, there's something new coming out. What emerging technologies like AI are you excited about that you believe will take database marketing to the next level for financial institutions? Well, certainly AI is the key. I mean, AI is the next big thing. And AI has been around for a long time. Yep. I mean, it re- it's not new, but ChatGPT just brought it into the public discourse in a way none of us could have expected, right? And now you just can't read a paper today without AI being part of it. But I'll tell you where AI gets really interesting because if AI is deployed ethically, responsibly, making sure that those models are not polluted, making sure that they are not biased, there's a lot to AI to make sure you get it right and to make sure that you aren't unintentionally perpetuating biases in the models based on the data, again, that they've been trained on. Um, But if you get it right, now you can start to apply AI models. Um, in our case, we have one that looks at engagement risk. So one of the biggest things that's a risk to the financial institution is the silent attrition risk. Nobody calls their institution to say, I'm closing my account oh, today. They, they don't just, even close they it. Just, yeah. No, they yeah. just leave it open and yeah. then they just drift to other alternatives, yep. right? So being able to have an AI model that informs you and pops to the top who are your most engaged and loyal potentially account holders so that you know, to your point, as you're spending limited dollars, what you might want to offer them first versus who are the ones that might be showing signs of attrition risk based upon a lot of parameters that the human eye could not put together on its own and really start to surface those account holders to the top so that you can maybe intercept them before they decide I'm really going to go somewhere else and put more of my, more of my wallet somewhere else. These are the things AI can do to help you be smarter. It's all about making you smarter. I I don't subscribe to the philosophy that AI is going to take away jobs. I think AI is going to replace jobs. And I think it's going to force you just as social media 10 years ago entered in and ushered in a new crop of marketer that now that is a competency to know how to do social media marketing. I think in many ways you can make the same argument data marketing 10 years ago, 15 years ago, when, when MarTech stacks first started kind of really coming into their own, that ushered in a new category of marketers. I think AI is going to do the same thing. It's going to change the role of marketing, but it's going to actually, for the jobs it replaces, it's going to create a whole new spectrum of jobs that are yet to be seen and allow a marketer, and in this case, an institution, to use their limited human resources so much more smartly. So the human machine yeah. teaming really starts to become much more interesting as to what you delegate to the machines and what you allow your precious human capital to go do with with their minds that really are still human human interest problems to go solve. You know, it's interesting it, with, you know, I, I say the same thing that you said, which is change has never happened this fast and never happened this slowly again. Well, how do you keep up with that change? Well, I have found that by implementing a number of different AI tools, it helps me get educated faster. It doesn't replace me, but what it does, it makes it so I can do what I do better, faster, and with more knowledge. I, I mentioned on a previous podcast, we just did a podcast with a person who wrote a book called The Future Normal. And it basically looks at the future in a very positive light on what could become our, our normal. And he has, I think, 30 chapters. 
And he's, I said, how did you use AI for this book? And he goes, well, interestingly, I didn't go the normal route saying, help me write this chapter. He, he had AI evaluate every chapter. And he said, evaluate as if you just gave it a one-star review. What did you find wrong with this chapter? Wow. And I, yeah, ex- exactly what I wow. said. I'm going, that, that comment, which I had never thought of, is so powerful because if you're trying to get something out there, now people kind of do that with emails. Well, they'll send e- emails through an AI tool to say, am I saying this the best possible way, especially on negative emails? But if you right. sent, you know, your writings and said, where's my gap? You know, what have I missed? Why would you give me a one star rather than a five star? It becomes very powerful because I know that many times AI opens my eyes to an angle that I maybe wasn't looking at. So it lets me write in a different way and a different focus. It helps me with podcasts and developing questions. I'm sure it probably could have helped you with some of your answers, you know, because the again, yeah. the world is changing so fast that things happen without us noticing them. And so this helps us keep on top of things. So, you know, we talk a lot about digital and, and technology and automation. How do financial institutions strike a balance between what's capable capable digitally and the need for human interaction? I love this question because it, you have, like I said, I don't think machines are taking over the world. We're still a little bit away from the singularity, at least yes. you know, at least a decade or so. We'll see. Um, but I'll give you an example of how you can use the automation, but still create the human touch. Um, And it it came from an example that um, when we acquired Segment, uh, the CMO of Segment actually was a former customer of the product and was such a, a loyal, avid customer of the product. She came over and became the CMO of Segment. We're so glad she's here. She's on our team now and amazing. But one of the campaigns she and her team launched when she was a customer of Segment on the other side was around this time of year, it's, it's thoughtful to do random acts of kindness. You want to show your account holders that you care about them as human beings. And it's not unusual for uh, a company of any kind to send a gift and to send like a, a card of some kind, a gift card to say, hey, thanks for being a loyal customer. Well, what her team did was they said, look, we could do that. We could send coffee cards to Starbucks to every single one of our account holders and be done with it. Or we can use this data to actually understand who prefers Dunkin' Donuts versus Starbucks. And they looked at the data and did a very analog campaign because this was sending out oh, yeah. cards and kind of doing, but but using data to automate and understand preferences. And it's, it's not like a customer would know, oh, wow, they must have known that I love Dunkin' Donuts and my neighbor got Starbucks. Not that they necessarily knew that, but what a delight to be somebody who maybe love Starbucks like me, maybe not as big on Dunkin' Donuts, although I'll certainly drink any coffee you put in front of me. But to get a Starbucks card, it's like, wow, that's great. It's like, I will will definitely use this versus somebody who loves Dunkin'. I lived in the Northeast for a period of time, and I can tell you, people love Dunkin' in the Northeast. That's that's it now. (laughs) It's on every corner, and everybody loves Dunkin'. But to understand your account holders, to actually get that human interaction to say, we're going to do random acts of kindness. This isn't about generating ROI. This right. isn't about like, I'm going to go show. This is just about thanking our account holders for being who they are. And oh, by the way, let's be smart when we do it because we actually do know their preferences based on, again, if you show me what you where you spend your money, I'll show you what's important to you. Let's go look at who likes one variety over the other and be tailored in what we offer them. 
that to me is the best example of like that human kind of like, that's a moment of magic of like, okay, now we're getting somewhere. Well, it's interesting because I worked with a direct marketing company before I did what I'm doing today. And we've served only financial institutions. And one of the things we asked was, how do we collect new data that's outside the norm that we may not find? And we tested a, a, a process that basically asked customers to answer five questions and about their use of financial products, their financial well-being, key, key questions that would directionally help our communication. But the last question was, in the future, if we ask you surveys about information like this, what would you like as a possible Thank you for what you did. What, to your point, was it a, a $5 Starbucks card? Was a $5 ice cream uh, card for an ice cream cone at a, a regional ice cream place? Is it a donation to a charity? Um, right. I, I think there were four choices. What was interesting about that is as soon as people turned in their survey, we sent out the reward. We never told them we would do it based on this first set. But we said, you know, right. but what it did was it showed them Guess what? We're asking you a question we're actually listening to. That's it. And mm-hmm. and that value transfer of of trust and and the belief that God, this is not going to be like fill out a 14-page survey in their financial well-being and I'm going to put it in my side drawer and never open it again. You know, this is a key element. And and it's as you said, it's a great way to take some of the digital and some of the human and put it together. You know. One thing that I know your organization is extraordinarily focused on is not just the selling of products, but to improve financial well-being. What are you doing or what have you seen done to actually help the consumer in an empathetic way? Yeah. Well, I think, again, it goes back to these are very interesting economic times. We've not been here for a minute in this kind of inflationary period you know, are we going into a recession? Are we not? As I said at the top here, deposit um, pricing, we deposit have- <laughs> pricing. I mean, we're we're seeing yeah. like it's like what's what's old is new again. Our yeah. our our FIs are saying for the first time we're having to compete for deposits. We haven't had to do that. You know, we have people on our team that don't even know what that means because they weren't here the last time that we had to actually compete the way that we are for deposit accounts. So, um, when when I think about kind of where that is going and how you can intercept these generations, especially when I look at younger generations that are under these very uncertain financial times. The future for for Gen Zs right now and millennials, um, even though we sit at the at the brink of the greatest intergenerational wealth transfer in history, right? The question is who's going to get that money? And there are some who say it's going to be, you know, the rich are going to get richer, the poor are going to get poor. It's just going to be bestowed down to those who already have the wealth. That means that there are generations right now that the the financial future and the American dream are a bit uncertain. Owning a home used to be the quintessential American dream. Now you have you have Gen Zs and millennials who are saying, look, I, I need to just live in the moment because I don't know if I'm ever going to get there. So if we can actually democratize technology to make financial wellness something available to the masses, no longer reserved to yeah. the elite that used to, you know, that that was the, the the norm of, well, look, I don't have an advisor. I don't have a professional advisor telling me where I should be putting my money, how I should be thinking about the next loan that I take out, 
What is the best offer for me? If we can actually use technology to inform how to intercept these consumers and small businesses in their time of need to actually serve up in some cases, wellness tips to your point or serve up some alternatives because you know, the average consumer does not know about the plethora of products available in their bank or credit union. How do we make this so that it is more organic, more natural, more personal and more relevant to them? I think that's where the next frontier really can go on hyper-personalization. And it's something obviously I'm passionate about. It's why um, why I chose a career in this field and made a change over from kind of other tech areas, because I really feel this is uh, now more than ever, more important than ever to, to actually do something where the technology can actually serve masses. So Allison, finally, you know, we have two major reports that one has come out, one's about to come out. You, you have uh, the 2024 strategies and budgeting for financial institutions playbooks. It's an ebook that actually I was involved in, as well as Brett King, Ron Shelvin, and Jim Perry in, in providing some insights into it. But a lot was covered there. In addition, we have partnered together, the two of us, as well as your research company, on a brand new report on digital banking readiness, basically your maturity index for digital banking. Both those reports work really well in context with each other, but there's always f- surprises or there's a, maybe a, a double down on something we already know. When you look at these two reports that really run side by side right now, what, what big takeaways did you have from both these reports? Well, I think it's it's something we knew, but to actually see it play out in multiple studies is where you start to go, okay, where there's smoke, there's fire at that point. Because one thing about research, and I, I said I love research, but one thing about research is you can kind of read into it what you think if you don't do a lot of studies on the same topic. Sometimes you get an outlier and you can run to, the, run to that and say that's the case and you find out it actually isn't. We now have multiple studies that point to the same thing. And that is what we've been talking about, hyper-personalization at scale, data maturity in the organization, which is beyond just the tech stack like we've talked about here. It actually starts at a much higher altitude, which is a cultural change within the institution itself. The way the institution even describes its culture is different if you are a more data-driven organization versus one that is more intuitive experience-driven. And we see the difference in the results and the outcomes of how data-driven institutions behave and perform versus their counterparts. That would be one. And then secondly, it it is about an omni-channel experience. It's about reaching consumers and businesses where they are and where they prefer to be reached. So it's no surprise that you see things like digital account opening, digital access, those kinds of things, mobile. It's beyond digital now. It's now mobile um, account opening. You're starting to see that there is an expectation among consumers especially, that they expect to be served where they are. And this is obvious, Jim. We've been talking about it, admiring it. We've been talking about, you know, the the Amazon influence on just about every aspect of our lives. But I think we kind of were, you know, maybe assuming, well, maybe financial services will be different because it's so personal. It's so important that maybe consumers would be a bit more reluctant to relegate some of those, those things to, hey, I really do want you to be more personalized with me and I want you to intercept me. And what we're finding is 
lo and behold, consumers expect it here too. So how do we help financial institutions bridge that gap where it is about the human touch, which is what, in my opinion, our financial institutions have done better than anybody is that the regional and community financial institutions are the backbones of the communities that they serve every single day. We don't want to lose that. It's not about we, we discard what has been so important in the legacy here. It's about how do you build on that legacy and bridge to a new future with even more promise by bringing in tools, technology, automation, cultural change that's for the better to help these financial institutions increasingly compete and win. You know, it's interesting, Allison. My takeaway for the same as yours that that some of the things, as you said, we've learned through the last few years that that culture and leadership really are driving a lot. Um, that secondly, technology by itself isn't going to cut it. Um, you can't buy yourself into better customer engagement. You, it takes more than that. It, it takes alignment. It takes marketing. It takes all these elements. It takes good data. Um, I think the other one that's a big takeaway for me was that we found that there were major success stories from the standpoint of digital transformation maturity on both the large and the small institutions. Not a surprise, the large ones are financed very well. So that helps a lot. But they have some internal issues they have to do with. So not every big institution is digitally mature. We also found that some small institutions really outpunch their weight with regard to their digital transformation maturity, their their ability to really take new technologies and make them work. And I'm going to do a shameless plug here for both of us in that uh, part of this whole journey is is something that we decided to start last year which is the Visionaries podcast. Visionaries podcast is focused entirely on community-based financial institutions that are really doing outstanding things. And I've said this before, uh, your team is aware of this, as my team is, that there's nothing that makes my week more enjoyable than to do an interview of a small institution that is way out punching their weight, many times with people that have enthusiasm that blows off the chart because their vision, their executive team and their implementation are all aligned. They don't worry as much about the economic uncertainty. They just change their goals. They don't worry as much about the competition because they realize they're really doing what the competition is doing. And it's so much fun. And, and yes, I'm going to, I'm going to point people to another place as well. The Fissionary Podcast by Alchemy, we do every other week interviews with smaller organizations that are just killing it in culture, in implementation, in marketing, in transformation, in digital engagement, all these other elements that are so important. And it really is exciting to know that, you know, size really doesn't matter if you have the right mentality, if you have the right partners. And um, just, uh, again, I, I want to thank you at the end of this podcast for the ability to work with you on the other podcast that really is just it's it's all about the implementation cycle. So I love it, Jim. thank you so much for being on this show today, though. Thank you, Jim. And thank you for partnering with us on that digital maturity model. I got to shamelessly plug you because we were looking at data from over 200 financial oh, institutions yeah. that responded to this instrument, which was pretty in-depth. As you well know, you were right there in the saddle with us. And at the end of it, we were kind of looking at the trends. And yes, larger institutions have the benefit of financial resources. And you were the one that said, hey, is it about the size of the fight of the dog and the fighter about the size of the fight and the dog? Which is it? Yeah. And you prompted our research firm to go back and look for those who were outperforming their peers in spite of their size being smaller and 
underperforming their peers in spite of their size being larger. And we were actually able to pull out some interesting characteristics of what those FIs shared in common, which gave a whole nother lens to the study. So thank, oh, you, thank you for being yeah. you and representing um, the, the regional and community financial institutions on visionaries and beyond. And thank you for having me. This has been amazing. Great. Till next time. Till next time. Thanks for listening to Pancake Transform, the winner of three international awards for podcast excellence. We appreciate the support we've received through the years, making this endeavor a success. If you enjoy what we're doing, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research you're doing on the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our senior producer, Leah Haslidge, audio engineer, Chris Fafalius, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Remember, the key to bank marketing ROI is to align with evolving customer expectations. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.